Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Today we're going to be covering the text from Luke 7, verses 18 to 35, and thinking about what the real biblical view is of doubt. And I do hope you find it helpful. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Luke, a journey we began coming up to about around about a month ago, and it's part of our journey, our plan to work through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So you're very welcome whether you're here for day one, and it's the beginning of a new year and a new you, or you're here and you've been here right from the very beginning. And if you are here for the first time, then make sure you hang around at the end where I'll tell you lots of ways you can connect to the ministry and get additional free Bible teaching resources. So with that all said, I'll say bye-bye for now, and I'll see you at the end. Bye-bye now. Suppose I were to tell you that in church history there have been some great people, great leaders in fact, who have confessed to having very real doubts. Yet at the same time, I can tell you their life, even in spite of those doubts, remained holy and that perspective remained wholly acceptable to God. And he continued to use them greatly in spite of their struggles and doubts. I think that would probably shock some people in some churches today. Now it's true that at one level there is a type of doubt that is not acceptable to God, but the other type of doubt is wholly acceptable to God. So what I'm going to try to do today is answer the question of pointing out the difference between those two types of doubt. One that's okay, one that's acceptable, and one less so. And see if I can help us learn the distinction between the two, to recognize the difference between the two in our lives. Now the passage under consideration today is quite straightforward. Primarily it's focusing on John the Baptist and his response to the questioning of Jesus as to whether or not he was the Messiah. It's noteworthy that whether Jesus is addressing John's disciples or the general crowd, the central theme remains the same. John the the Baptist in this passage that we're looking at is we're going to see the narrative divided into three parts for us. First of all, there's John's doubts, the doubts he expresses, then his subsequent position in response to Jesus' reply, and then thereby his practice after that. And additionally, the whole concept of doubt is the thing that is is addressed and categorized into two different ways across this entire passage, an acceptable and an unacceptable form of doubting. So we'll begin with John's puzzlement, if you like, his questioning. And what we see happening is the disciples of John come to him, so his own followers come to him and ask him questions about this guy, Jesus, they've heard about. And that prompts John to send two of his own disciples to ask Jesus his specific question, is he the Messiah? Or should they in fact be still expecting someone yet to come? Now the term used here, often translated as the one to come, is essential to understand that that term is synonymous with the Messiah. Despite some ambiguity in the the use of some terms referring to this, like the use of the word all things, it's referring to previous events that have happened. But it's more than that. 
he's looking at the events and it's a clear case of John initially through his disciples and then later in his own way questioning the very messiahship of Jesus. And in the use of this term in this opening passage, again it can be taken to mean one of two things depending on how that word is being used and the context in which it is being used. The significance of that very distinction comes apparent in the context of places like Galatians chapter 1 where it talks about another gospel, in other words emphasizing a different kind of gospel rather than something that is one and of the same kind. Then in the second part, we'll see John's position in addressing what he's heard. Jesus speaks about who John was and he to his disciples, acknowledging him as the role as a prophet and connecting him, John himself, with the prophecy in Malachi about a messenger being the one who prepares the way of the Lord. So Jesus himself highlights John's significant position in the context of the overall prophecies. And lastly, we will see Jesus speak about John's practice. We'll hear about what he actually does, contrasting what John did with the expectations of many of the people around them. You see, despite John's, how would you say, unique aesthetic lifestyle, the people still fail to recognize the significance of the overall message. And this emphasizes, I believe, for us the importance of always understanding the deeper spiritual meanings that lie behind things rather than just the outward appearance. Throughout this whole exploration in these opening verses of today's passage, the theme of doubt surfaces and resurfaces. John has doubts which are acknowledged and addressed by Jesus, indicating a level of acceptability that the fact that those doubts are worth, worthy of considering and worthy of Jesus spending his time addressing. However, Jesus will also be seen to criticize the doubts of those who witness things like his ministry, like his miracles, and still doubt. And he categorizes those types of doubts as the ones that are unacceptable. So in summary, this passage will actually revolve around John the Baptist, encompassing first his confusion, his perplexity at what's going on, then his position following a discussion about who Jesus is and hearing who Jesus says, what Jesus says about himself, John the Baptist, and of course Jesus himself. And it also delves into the whole nuanced concept of the doubts we see expressed distinguishing between acceptable and unacceptable doubts. This is a thorough examination of this subject uh, here. So what John is saying here is he's going to go to, to Jesus and say, are you the Messiah or are we are to look for a person of a different kind? The implication seems to be is, are you Jesus, just a mere mortal? Or are you really the Messiah that we are looking for you, for you? And that's John's rather initial confused position at the beginning. So with that said, let's pick up the text and the first three verses, which tell us, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? 
So in this opening verse of the passage in Luke today, it seems to suggest that John the Baptist is definitely experiencing, well, at least a little bit of confusion, but certainly some doubt. Perhaps that doubt has been raised by the questioning and the discomfort among some who view, who are viewing Jesus as just another spiritual leader, perhaps even a great spiritual leader, it's fair to say. Now, while some commentators do argue that John's question was posed on behalf of disciples and he was showing no doubt himself, I don't think that that's a realistic way to interpret this passage. The subsequent verses in the passage, especially Jesus' response to those questions, indicate that I believe that John is indeed grappling with doubt, certainly about Jesus' role as the Messiah anyway. And verse 20 we see recounts how John's messengers ask Jesus exactly what they've been told to ask, that being, is he the actual expected Messiah, or should they be still anticipating another, someone else? And Jesus responds to this inquiry, and I believe is seen absolutely to address John's genuine doubt. It's often noted that great spiritual leaders can also have moments of doubt, just like John the Baptist did here, citing instances in their life. We see it in throughout church history, but we also see it in the Bible stories in people like Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, and even the Apostle Paul himself. Doubt, as expressed in this way, in this context, is very different from out-and-out unbelief as doubt involves in a certain way of engaging and struggling to understand God's actions in the world, whilst unbelief is different because it's a willful refusal to accept what God's word or when you see God plainly working amongst you. Now remember at this point, John may very well have been in prison or had, had just spent a period of time in prison, his doubts were no doubt exacerbated by that situation. It's under, perfectly understandable on a human level he would be questioning whether Jesus is truly the Messiah because the consequences of the message he was bringing and where it brought him to. John's captivity had probably instilled, if not fear, then certainly a, a, an amount of uncertainty and questioning in his heart. Many people, when facing perhaps unexplained or unexpected challenges to their faith, which has resulted in hardship, it's quite reasonable that you may be able to experience doubt and question whether or not your strong conviction of faith is correct. I think the Lord understands that. But despite that, despite what you might say John's questioning is doubt, Jesus responds, and he responds not with a lecture, but with a discussion and a demonstration of his actions. Let's carry on with the text, 21 through to 28. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have had leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed sprayed, swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? 
A man dressed in fine clothes? No, there were no expensive clothes, and no indulgement in luxury, no position in a palace. But what did you go out to see? A prophet, yes. I tell you, and more even than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare you and the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So here we have what I've been talking about. In verse 21 it highlights that Jesus at that very hour is performing numerous miracles in front of John's disciples. He's curing illnesses, casting out evil spirits, even restoring the sight of the blind and raising the dead. The emphasis is his response is to for them to testify the continuation of the miraculous deeds that have been that they've heard that have been going on. And then by what he says, there's an element of compassion in his response as well. He also deals with his doubt. But rather than lecturing, he just demonstrates his power and his compassion by first of all the tangible acts of healing and then by the second thing of encouraging John, bigging John up if you like in, in modern parlance. In essence, this passage is seen that Jesus is portraying John the Baptist as someone very special, and he's communicating that to him in his moment of doubt, in the moment he's struggling with his very understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. So Jesus, in response, doesn't tell him off, he doesn't condemn him, he addresses his doubts by telling them to relay the tangible acts of mercy and power that they are witnessing emphasizing his compassionate nature and using that as a way of confronting John with what he is grappling and the part of his faith that is challenging him as well as encouraging him by explaining who he is. So Jesus's response is very clearly he instructs those guys the messenger sent by John he tells them to report back to him what he's seen, the things they've witnessed. And it's clear that it's not just that it's been going on in its third hand again. They see these things, these miraculous things. So essentially, Jesus is conveying to John through his actions that they themselves are aligning up with all the Old Testament prophecies that John the Baptist would have been familiar with regarding the Messiah coming. His, not, his works are communicated to John not just as acts of healing, but as fulfillment of prophetic expectations. Jesus emphasizes this connection by stating, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And Jesus thereby is cautioning John and others not to stumble in their faith because of the unconventional, miraculous, rather, nature of Jesus' ministry. John may have been tempted to doubt or stumble due to unmet expectations, but only if he had an, a different understanding of the Messiah's role. And then this passage in the middle addresses John's doubt, categorizing if it, if you like, categorizing his confusion and where it belongs. And he responds by highlighting the alignment of his action with these prophecies. So this passage, this episode is meant to offer a lesson for us de dealing with doubt as templated here through John the Baptist dealing with his doubt. So for us it's particularly useful in the context of us as individuals questioning our Christian faith. 
So, in, and the important point to note is instead of dismissing, and very importantly, instead of condemning such doubts, it is seen here as the crucial response is to engage in open conversations with others and with the Lord concerning our understanding of these things. The common mistake, as I've seen in some cases, sadly too often, is when people ask questions is an attempt to suppress those questions or implying guilt upon people if they have doubts. An approach I believe is always, always, friends, highly counterproductive. Acknowledge and addressing doubts with empathy and openness is a more constructive way to navigate the vast majority of such situations. Remember when I said a moment ago, the person who doubts may in fact not be in error. It may just be, it's, it doesn't stand that their position is in error. It's a way just of them sort of working out what they believe and what they think and, uh, and really just approaching God's word and God's presence with, with honesty and integrity. Notice very clearly that Jesus' response here is not to condemn John the Baptist for asking the questions or getting these guys to ask the questions on his behalf. He specifically addresses them and answers them. I suppose that comes from me reaching, in my own personal perspective, reaching the point where I fully understood what Peter said in his letter, is that as Christians we must be prepared to give a reasonable answer to any questions that we were asked. And I see that as my job. I see that as our job. It's the Holy Spirit's job to do the work. After that, my point is simply to take people and try and point them in the direct, uh, direction and try and answer them honest, honestly as best I can. Never to confuse the question with the questioner. And isn't it good to see that someone no less than John the Baptist doubted and Jesus answered him. And we ought to do the same, offer that same accommodation to other people. And if we in, in our, of ourselves are experiencing expressing those doubts, then we need to be easy on ourselves and give ourselves that own accommodation as well. Seek out the answer through God's word, through mature Christians, and ask God himself in prayer. And I believe he will respond in a way that's helpful. The next verse tells us, 24, that the messengers of John then leave. They depart and he begins to speak to the crowd concerning John the Baptist himself. And what he does, he talks to the crowd, but he uses John as an illustration because this crowd have obviously been there and witnessed this conversation between Jesus and John's disciples, they've apparently seen what's going on. So he now says to them, he talks to them and the wider crowd about who John the Baptist is and what he was like and his importance and what his role is. And he says, did people go out in the wilderness to see just a reed shaken by the wind? Did they go out to see someone who had power dressed in fine man's cloth and soft garments, it says? Jesus says, says, did all these people who follow John the Baptist to hear him preach, what did they expect to see? Did they expect to see someone weak? Did they expect to see a reed or an oak tree? Did they expect to see someone clothed in posh garments and living in luxury? Did they go out, uh, did they go find him in a king's courtyard? No, the key is they find him in the wilderness. 
I think there's an element of this idea of preaching in the wilderness as opposed to a king's courtyard. I think there would have been a resonance ringing in people's minds there about the role of the prophets and the prophets who sat with kings and the prophets who spoke to the general people. I think Jesus is simply saying that he went out in the wilderness because when a prophet speaks to a king or in and out of a royal situation, it's very likely that they're going to dress things up in a manner that won't affect powers to be. So John the Baptist is portrayed here as being an ordinary guy, an ordinary man speaking to all people, not speaking something just to the, the ruling class and confirming, giving them what they wanted to hear, so to speak. So to substantiate John's significance to these people, he quotes Malachi 3.1. That's quoted directly here in Luke 7.27. He's asserting that John the Baptist in of himself is the one who fulfills the Old Testament prophecy as the one called the messenger who prepares the way for the Messiah. So this aligns with the initial doubt expressed by John and Jesus highlights not only the fulfillment of his role but uh, the importance of John's role in all of this. And he makes a remarkable statement about just how important John is by doing this. He actually says this, I say to you amongst those born of women there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. This accolade emphasizes John's privileged position as the forerunner of the Messiah. However, Jesus adds a profound twist to it, stating that he who is the least of the kingdom of God is still greater than John. Now, let's be clear, this mark is not meant to diminish John's stature, but as a recognition of both the unique position of John, but also the potential for anyone who comes in humility before the Lord, the position that they potentially can hold in the kingdom of God. So this statement underscores that while John is the greatest of all the prophets, even greater than the prophets of the, of the Old Testament, his role is still preparatory. It's about preparing for the coming of the Messiah and preparing God's people for his coming. Those in the kingdom of God, he's saying, those who will be in this kingdom of God, the new messianic kingdom, even the least among them will have a greater privilege than anyone who has gone before i.e. they have the direct experience of witnessing the Messiah ruling and reigning, and for those of us thereafter, for the very presence of God by his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. This comparison he uses is meant to highlight the difference between the Old Testament prophets and the extraordinary privilege initially bestowed upon John, but fully realized by those who will belong to the subsequent kingdom of God. John has been given the privilege of being the herald who will announce the arrival of both that Messiah and that kingdom, reminding us that those in that kingdom subsequently will directly witness the effect of the Messiah's ruling and reign which in a sense, I suppose, makes John's position all the more acceptable because the, he's the first of many. Okay, in verses 29 to 35, Jesus continues addressing the crowd, focusing now on the response to John the Baptist's ministry and contrasting it with their reaction to his own ministry, the ministry of Jesus. And it says this, All the people, 
Even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that Jesus was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts of the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. You say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is provided right by all her children. Okay, in this passage it explores the practical aspects of John's ministry and the very different responses he gets from different groups of people. And the illustration he uses is a comparison to children playing in the marketplace. We see he notes that when people, including tax collectors, in other words, including what were considered the worst of people, sinners, heard about Jesus, many acknowledged God's righteousness and approved Jesus, recognized Jesus as Messiah. The tax collectors, in fact, themselves, some had been baptized by John, we discovered here, indicating the acceptance of God's righteousness among every type of person. But on the other hand, we hear that the Pharisees, the lawyers, had not been baptized by John, had not taken up the offer, rejected it just as they would reject the actual Messiah himself, rejected John, rejected the will of God that was offered and the insight offered through him. So what they did was, yeah, they hadn't a doubt, but their doubt, these people being described here, is wrapped up in disbelief, which is a very different thing to the first type of doubt that we've examined today. In verses 31 to 32, Jesus chooses to use this metaphor of children playing in the marketplace to illustrate the inconsistent and unreasonable attitudes of some of the people. The children are seen to, to, to be playing a wedding tune, and it says people refuse to dance. Then it's the, to, to represent both extremes, it talks about playing a funeral dirge, dirge and yet the, the refusal to respond in the appropriate way persists in no matter what context or what frame or how it's been presented to them. So this metaphor used here by Jesus, I think is meant to reflect the people's fickleness, their inability to be pleased or accept what they're offered in whatever way it's presented to them. And it's interesting to note that he's talking here about John and the response to his message, which of course is exactly going to be exactly the same thing as they will respond to him, Jesus the Messiah himself. The application of all this is made in verses 33 to 34, where he again shows that the two different contrasts both leading to this, the same response. John the Baptist, he talks about coming with this aesthetic lifestyle, neither eating bread, never drinking wine, yet they accuse him of having a demon. Jesus comes and presents things in another way. Uh, he participated in the ordinary social activities of the day. We see him eating, drinking, celebrating a wedding, and they criticize him for that as well. They say he's a glutton. They say he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. The concluding statement in verse 35 gives you us a, a, the perspective of how wisdom can be justified in the children of God. 
In this context, it means that the righteousness of God and the way of God and the wisdom of God are confirmed in anyone who accepts and acknowledges God's righteous as revealed to them through the ministry forewarned, heralded by John the Baptist and now presented in its entirety through Jesus the Messiah. The point of all these verses, particularly these closing verses, is simply to say that nothing pleases these people and nothing will always please some people and they didn't get it whatever way that, that knowledge came to them. Jesus is saying they rejected the will of God for themselves and they refused to believe in who he was and it is that type of doubt that, leading, that by nature leads to unbelief that Jesus finds unacceptable. So the first part of the passage we've looked at today is teaching that doubt in certain contexts is okay if you're sincerely seeking to know the truth, sincerely trying to answer those questions. But the whole second part of this passage is saying that if your doubt is actually just a form of disbelief, then that is not acceptable. Before I close, I just want to point out this verse at the end where it talks out, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said he was a glutton. And they accuse him of being friends of tax collectors and sinners. And I think the spiritual aspect of that is still happening amongst us today. It's still, in fact, happening, happening in churches today. Jesus is always the friend of ordinary people in everyday ordinary places. And there's a warning here for all of us friends, particularly those of us, I think, who belong, who identify as being part of the evangelical church. In reality, most evangelical Christians, if we do not see our friends come to Christ, we tend to leave them by the wayside. We tend to desert them and we end up, after a period of time, just having friends, other friends who are all believers. Now, I know I need to be careful in what I say here and couch it carefully. If you're friends with unbelievers, which you should be, you have to be very careful that they're not influencing you. Instead, you should be influencing them. And that means, of course, you need to approach this carefully. It is legitimate to say we ought also not just to be friends with unbelievers in the attempt to win them over. It's got to be wider and a deeper and a broader and a fuller context to that. We have got to genuinely befriend them in the sense that we genuinely put their best interests at heart and make decisions that are best for them and how we approach them and support them. And we must never deny our faith or never allow them to try to allow them to influence away and take us away from the Lord. Now, I've worked hard all my life since becoming a Christian to maintain and have relationships with people in my life, people who aren't Christians. In fact, some of them have made it very clear to me that they're not believers. They know full well who I am, but every once in a while I still get to slip things in. But it is only the fact that I have a genuine friendship or relationship with me, with me that earns me the privilege to do that. So in the biblical context, John the Baptist represents anyone who expresses a different perspective, a genuine doubt about Jesus. But we see Jesus not condemning John at all. The crowd, however, we see a different doubt, one that is rejecting the will of God, expressing not just doubt, but also unbelief. 
And it's that type of doubt that is unacceptable to the Lord, and it is that type of doubt expressed by our friends that we have to address very, very carefully. So the main point here is to enable us to highlight the distinction between genuine doubts, genuine questions, people seeking understanding, people to understand where we're coming from through people who are just expressing their unbelief. Honest doubt rooted in a sincere desire to ask a question we should never be afraid of. The desire to know the truth is acceptable to God, highly acceptable to God, I would say, because it is in fact a stepping stone into, well, for believers, a stronger faith, and to unbelievers, maybe a chance to cross over to the other side. In my estimation, the questioning aspects of faith or scripture or even God himself, when done with sincerity, can lead someone to not only spiritual growth, but into the very heart and will of God himself. On the other hand, doubt that serves as a cover for disobedience, as a way of hiding behind rebellion or absolute out-and-out unbelief, is not acceptable to God. Throughout history, there's been many examples of people whose doubt played a crucial role, maybe not for them in their individual progress, but in the individual progress and discovery of the entire human race. Galileo, Columbus, Newton, Einstein, all were individuals who wholly and sincerely accepted God and the Bible and Jesus as his son, but who also questioned the prevailing views of the time. And they contributed to the advancement, not only in their respective fields, but with a proper approach and understanding to what they argued, a greater understanding of God and his creation and his plan for us, I believe. So I believe that this passage, the whole important aspect of it is, it's there to emphasize the importance, the acceptance of honest doubt, both in ourselves and when we see it in under people, and underscores the importance of open questioning from our heart, whether it be of our own or when we witness this in other people, and allowing us to have the insights to distinguish between those two things and answer them appropriately. And I do hope that you find that helpful in your life, if you have any doubts in your life or when you come into contact with people who genuinely express them to you. So thanks for joining me here today. And that's it for today. Thank you for joining me. If you're here for the first time, let me just remind you, click on the subscribe button and you need never miss another single episode. Subscribe and you can make the study, the in-depth study of the Word of God part of the rhythm of your daily life. We're on this journey together. I'm learning a lot from it. I trust you are too. By doing that, you also have access to lots of resources. Every day I do a lengthy episode notes page as well as a full transcript of everything I say. Those are available for you to take and freely use in whatever way you want. 
to distribute or just to support your own ministry and anything that you're doing. Please take them with my blessing and I believe the Lord's and use them whatever you want to build the kingdom in the place that God has placed you. You'll also find links on the podcast, certainly on some of the platforms that wherever you're choosing to listen to, but if you're not seeing them there, then if you visit the homepage at the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com, that's the host podcast website, you'll find active links to all those things, also including places like the socials, LinkedIn, the YouTube channel for the archive, and even places where you can support and partner and connect with me if you want. So with that said, Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being here today. Do come back again tomorrow and we'll continue together through our journey through the Gospel of Luke and we'll pick up on the text exactly where we left off today. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now.